James chapter 3, James writes, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I wonder this morning how many of you would consider yourselves wise. I don't, I don't mean just smart or knowledgeable or educated or intellectual. I mean genuinely wise. How many of you consider yourselves wise, and how would you know one from the other? How, do you have a way of indicating that you are actually wise? Now, getting to know many of you, some of you are much wiser than you actually think. Others, not so much. The point is, <laughs> do you have a way to understand if you're actually wise or not? Do you have the humility and security to actually admit, I lack wisdom, and, and where do I get that wisdom from? Now, you may not call it wisdom. That, that, that can sound like too of an antiquarian word in our culture or too bookish. So you might call it just street smarts, common sense. The point is, do you know when you got it? G.K. Chesterton, the theologian and writer, says this, very insightful. A wise person is wise enough to know he's wise. A fool is too foolish to know he's a fool, so he thinks he's wise. So both of them think they're wise, but only one is and the other is a fool. How can they tell which is which? They need an outside standard. See, friends, this is where the Bible shines so brilliantly because its teaching on wisdom is so earthy, it's so practical, it's just so down matter of fact. The Bible never holds out a wisdom that is this very spiritual and mystical and ambiguous kind of one-hand clapping kind of thing, and then never holds out a wisdom that's just so simplistic of a worldview like you might find in a Chinese fortune cookie. The Bible's wisdom is multidimensional. It's, it's full-orbed. It's robust. It's enough to get you through life. And the book of James, we've seen it woven all throughout it. I know we've covered a lot in this book, so let me just remind you how wisdom has been woven through every single section of the book. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, James was writing to a people, and he's letting us know that these are people that are suffering, some are just under great oppression, some from persecution, and some just from the common trials and difficulties in life. Regardless of who they are, every one of them needs the wisdom to see all their lives through the perspective of what God is doing. And then in verses 13 to 18, James says, in persevering through these trials and these struggles and through these difficulties, these people need to know and have the wisdom to realize that when they stumble and fall, it is not God who's making them sin, but rather their own desires in their hearts that's leading them astray to that sin. And God only brings good gifts to His people, the best one being eternal life, because that's who He is in His nature, and He does not change. 
And so in verses 19 and 27, as he finishes the chapter, he says, so therefore those who call themselves Christians should not give in to these temptations and struggles. As a matter of fact, they should do the exact opposite. They should be doers of God's Word, hearing the countercultural wisdom in the Scriptures and living them out. To not do that would be absurd for those who call themselves disciples. And then he gives this vivid illustration in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, that sometimes we need, to be, we need to be like God, but sometimes we're not. Though God is consistent, not a shadow or variation of change, we're not that way. And it shows more than anything in the, in the ways we treat each other, the way we discriminate against the poor and favor the rich and, and, and live spiritual lives with no real transformation and the way we use our words so carelessly, we should know better. And then in the middle of chapter 2, he says that struggle, that, that inconsistency is seen no more than in the way we might profess to have a faith, but we actually don't have the actions that correspond. James says that kind of faith, that, that kind of faith that's just all lip service but doesn't live itself out is useless, it's worthless, it's dead. It, it's no good for this life or the next. And, and we use the phrase, a faith that does not work now is not a faith that's going to work then. And then James illustrates as he got into chapter 3, like our actions reveal our faith, our words reveal our hearts. And a, and a heart and faith that is divided toward the Lord results in instability across all of our lives. In chapter 1, verse 8, he called it the double-minded man who's unstable. In chapter 2, verse 4, he used the same phrase saying that we're unstable in our relationships with one another. And then in chapter 3, he says this leads to an unstable use of our words and puts us at odds with God's design. The point is, in every chapter of the book of James so far, James is saying it is absurd, the opposite of wisdom, the opposite of being wise, to constantly hear the word of God and not submit yourself to it and not be transformed by it. Look at uh, James chapter 1 and verse uh, 23 and 24. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, I love this metaphor. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he's like. James is saying, that never happens. It's absurd to think it would. So why would you hear the word and not do it? And then in chapter 2, verse 26 says, it, like the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And then in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, James writes this, for the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? See, the gospel is to be lived, it's to be practiced, it's to be acted upon. So with this entire context as the background, James opens up our passage and says, so with that in mind, who is wise and understanding amongst you? Well, well, not me, right? If I've done this right, you are, if I've set this up right, you should actually kind of feel the experience. You should be experiencing the teaching of this passage, a feeling that we do not match up. A sense that, if we think about it, we spend more of our lives resisting this kind of true wisdom than we do embracing it, and as a result, we feel a sense of our guilt. 
But more importantly, more importantly, I hope you're having a deepening realization of how important God's answers are for our problems, and because of that, a deepening gratitude for God in meeting our needs, because that's the whole idea. The Bible's never written to point out just what a problem and a mess we are in. The Bible points out the mess we are in to also show how God always cleans it up for us. And so that's what James is doing here. The key verse in our passage is the last verse we're looking at, uh, verse 18. It is actually the answer to the question James starts with in chapter 13. Now, obviously, in, in chapter, excuse me, in verse 13, James immediately answers his own question, but verse 18 illustrates it beautifully by the expression, a harvest of righteousness. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. In between, though, in verses 14 to 17, James is trying to show a contrast between the motivation, the characteristics, and the results of a worldly wisdom with that of real godly wisdom, with the hope that by God's grace, the readers then, as us now, will say, I choose godly wisdom. That's how our passage breaks down. The first thing we need to notice in verse 13, it's so obvious, is that wisdom, whether it's true wisdom or false wisdom, good wisdom or bad wisdom, wisdom is apparently seen in someone's life. Do you notice that, what James says? Who's wise and understanding amongst you? Here's the answer. Just look at the way they live. Wisdom is readily seen in the way we live our lives, just as not having wisdom is readily seen in our lives. Every section of the book of James so far was a contrast between that kind of worldly false wisdom and godly true wisdom. And so now as James has given enough contrast from their lives, he just puts the issue right on the table and comes out and states it. What has been implicit all along, he's going to explicitly jump into. So let's look at the motivation for this worldly wisdom. See it right there in verse 14, the motivation of false wisdom, James says, is simply this, jealousy and selfishness. Think about everything that we've, James has talked about, every situation, discriminating against the poor, favoring the rich, not, not having a transformed life, misusing your words, not understanding trials correctly, not understanding life correctly. They all can be traced back in some way to either a, a wanting of things that God has not ordained for me or an inordinate concern for myself. So what James is saying is false wisdom, at the core of false wisdom, is self-interest. Here's the kicker. Self-interest, like self-love, is rarely ever self-conscious. Let me say that again. Self-interest, like self-love, is rarely a self-conscious thing. What I mean is, Putting ourselves first and seeking after our own desires comes just so naturally to every one of us. And because it comes so naturally, we automatically assume and think that this is right. None of us in this room choose self-consciously selfishness. It's just hardwired into us, isn't it? That's just what we are, and because it's so natural to us, we assume that it's right. You know, this past Sunday or this past weekend, we were talking about biblical counseling, thinking about what, what the Bible says about the problems in living and understanding human motivation and all these things. And, and here's the, the great thing about biblical wisdom. If you want to know as much about human nature as a psychologist or a therapist, just work in children's ministry. 
Seriously. Do you know why? Because in children, children, they have no filter at all, right? They, they are not trying to be pretentious or presumptuous. They're just who they are, good, bad, or otherwise. And it usually comes out in selfishness. And so you often will see teachers and children's ministry trying to teach them about gratitude. I remember my wife told me a story. She had a friend teaching Sunday school, wanted the kids to understand gratitude. So she's saying, kids, what are the things we can be thankful for in our lives? Just raise your hand and what, what are you thankful for? Well, I'm, thankful for my, I'm thankful for my mommy. I'm thankful for my daddy. I like my puppy and a, a few of the spiritual ones. I'm thankful for the church, you know, and the winner. I'm thankful for the gospel. That was my second favorite answer. My first favorite answer was Stevie in the back. Stevie, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful. I'm thankful for my crack. What was that, Stevie? My crack. Right here. My crack. <laughs> of all the things I've been grateful to God for, I've never been thankful for that. But I mean, where would we be without it? So great. Uh, that's fantastic. My point simply is they have no filter. So if you want to know human motivation, the human nature, you work with kids, right? What's the most common word you're going to hear in the children's ministry from the children? Mine. It's like little golems running around in their diapers. Mine. Mine. And what do the, what do the teachers say? Share. Share. I mean, that's the mic drop moment. That's human nature coming out. No father ever dropped off their son or daughter. Say, okay, sweetie, as you're going in there, you've got to go for the Tonka truck. Because if you don't, little Stevie's going to come get it and you can't play with it, so you just go. <laughs> that never happens. Selfishness, thinking about ourselves and our own wants is hardwired into us. But because it's hardwired, we don't think twice about it. We think it's natural, and so it's okay. And the fact that our default mode of wisdom is so natural and so self-oriented is frightening. And that's what James gets at in verse 15. He talks about the characteristics of this kind of worldly wisdom. And notice the three adjectives he uses. He says it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. James uses these three adjectives. Now, the first two, admittedly, are not obviously identifiable as evil or inherently wrong, but that is what makes it more subtle and more dangerous, doesn't it? This earthly wisdom. What does he mean? What does he mean that it's an earthly wisdom? And what James means is that it limits itself to the present realities of any situation. Okay, it's not, it's not suggestive of any kind of anti-God perspective or stance, but it's not suggestive taking it to God in account at all. That's the problem. It's not necessarily against Him. It's just not even thinking about Him. It's just the common sense wisdom of this world, but only of this world. And that's why sometimes when we can actually get good counsel and wisdom from this kind of thinking, and it leads us to believe that it's completely all right. And if you need a car, you can get a Toyota Corolla, or, or you can get something really expensive if you, if you have the financial means to afford it. There's nothing inherently wrong with having an expensive car. Not at all. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't mind having an expensive car. 
when Lori and I got to do Alec and Amanda's wedding, we, we were in Denver and didn't have the kids, so we had more time on our hands, and we drove by a, a Maserati dealership. Now, this is something you don't know. Before my wife married me, she, you know, single woman working in the legal field, making a lot of money, so she collected European sports cars. She drove a Mercedes-Benz. She had a couple Alfa Romeros. One was a Spider, then got married me and got my Toyota pickup. So, love <laughs> the kind of God's justice, right? Anyway, so I said, honey, there's a Maserati Alfa Romeo dealership. How about we go look? And she's like, oh, okay, let's go in. Now, man, so we're looking. I was sitting in this Alfa Romeo Quadrifoglio. Did I get it right, honey? Quadrifoglio. Have you seen one of these beauties? 2017 Alfa Romeo Quadrifoglio. $95,000, I think. And I was thinking, man, I could minister in this thing. <laughs> South Orange County, I could I fit in. I could get to people's homes faster. This is, you know, that's not going to happen. My point simply is, what was my point? I was talking about expensive cars. You can have, there's... Oh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with an expensive car. But let's face it, if a car is just a car to you, and it's just to get from point A to point B, wouldn't it be, couldn't, maybe you can get the Toyota Corolla. And with all the extra money in between, man, you could, you could afford to, for, to be more generous and, and exercise generosity in your life in a way that maybe you were not able to do before. You might look better in that Alfa Romeo, but you could be sending out missionaries. You could be supporting kids that go to our youth camp. You could be helping the Pattons and, and the Haberchaks or the, the, the Van Piersums or equipping people in translation work in Japan. You could have a generosity that you've never conceived of before, and you can still get from point A to point B. See, there's nothing wrong with having an expensive car. There's wisdom if you can make it afford it and make the payments. But earthly wisdom just leaves it at just kind of common sense, financial sense. And it doesn't take into mind a kingdom mentality. And I wonder how many of us are operating at an earthly wisdom perspective. It's not wrong. It's not sinful. But it's also not thinking of the eternal realities that we are called to impact by our temporal decisions. Earthly wisdom is a wisdom that's just neutral to the things of God. But then James has another adjective. He says it's unspiritual, and this begins to, to heighten the contrast. It's, this is not a wisdom that's just simply neutral to God. This is a wisdom that's actually in contrast to the things of God. And every other time that the New Testament uses this word, it is in direct contrast to a positive, a spiritual positive. We, we see this kind of wisdom all the time in, in Christians and churches. Just this past Sunday, we heard about a, 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 a pastor and a, his wife who have retired from the ministry and they have grandkids, serve faithfully, and when they heard their grandkids were going off to the mission field with their parents, they went ballistic and caused all kinds of tension in the family. What in the world? What in the world, people, that, that we would raise our kids knowing the gospel, and when they show up and say, I want to take the gospel to the Amazon, we say, no, you need to go to college, you need to get a career, you need to be safe, stay in the U.S. That's unspiritual wisdom. I know that's hard as a parent. I was telling my wife the other day, I don't know what I was thinking when I got, when I was 19 years old. I went to a communist country to smuggle Bibles. I remember signing a paper that said if I was arrested by the authorities, they would deny all knowledge of my activity. And I was like, yeah, praise God, man, let's do this. I said, I don't know how I would feel now as a dad if my kids wanted to do that. I'm being unspiritual in, in thinking that. No, I get it. 
As parents, we want to keep our kids safe. We want to do those things. But Christ has not called us to safety. Christ called us to bring the gospel to the world. So we see this kind of unspiritual wisdom all the time in our midst, and sometimes we don't recognize it. I I see this uh, sometimes with Christian parents who value things like education and social prestige and sports, but they don't realize that they're making it more important to their kids' lives than the realities of their Christian faith. Now, that they would never say that, that these things are more important, but remember verse 13, wisdom is seen in the way we choose to live our lives. Christian parents, it's not what you say is important, it's what your kids see is important that matters. It's what they see with their eyes that shapes them. Do they see you worshiping God? Do they see you sacrificially loving, sacrificially giving, sacrificially serving, or is it just stuff they hear that you do? If they don't see you doing it, they're not hearing you do it either. I spent 10 years working with... um, uh, youth, youth, as a youth pastor, and consistently I would find the kids who were just doing well, and I would say, what, what was the thing, if they had Christian family, parents, I'd say, what was the thing that just helped you make your faith your own? And inevitably, 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 it was, man, my dad would be up every day at 5 a.m. reading his Bible. Or my mom would just serve constantly. My parents took us along and we would run this event at the church and they brought us with them. It's what they saw that transformed them. Guys, we, we got to realize the importance of example. What example are you setting? Now, you might say, well, that, 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 I don't want to be fake. I don't want to just bring them in here just so they can see me. It's not being fake. It's being deliberate. It's being thoughtful. You know, I used to read my Bible on my iPad. I think I even talked about that here. Reading my Bible on my iPad until I realized my kids have no idea if I'm reading my Bible, watching Netflix, or playing Battle Royale. So I stopped reading my Bible on my iPad as a regular habit. I just bust out this big old ESV study Bible, you know, so I'm really going to prove the point. <clears throat> There's my Bible in the morning, you know. There's all kinds of ways you can model this, friends. During Christmas season, Get a bunch of loose change. This one I learned from Lori. Get a bunch of loose change so whenever you see Salvation Army people, you actually put stuff in there, you know. We we do automated giving here, and I love so many people signed up for it. That's been great. But then we realized personally, our kids never see us give when the plate goes by. And at first I was like, woohoo, automated giving, no need for a checkbook, get rid of that antiquated thing. But now we keep it so we can write a little bit of a check. So we have automated giving, but we also write a check so they see giving. It's what they see, right? We want to model that for them. Don't hear me say, don't, do not hear me say, you, you can't, your kids shouldn't be involved in sports, you can't do all these weekends. Don't hear me say that. What I'm saying, friends, is a regular lifestyle pattern is what kids pick up on, right? What is your regular lifestyle pattern? That's the thing you need to hear me say. 
Is, is it a godly wisdom or is this kind of an unspiritual wisdom? Finally, the final adjective, James says it's demonic. James arranges his three adjectives in ascending order of strength in opposition to the things of God. Now, it stands to reason that if you traffic in a neutral kind of wisdom, you're neutral towards God, it's not long before, before you know it, because of our own fallenness, that's an opposition or a contrast to God, and it's a short step to actually standing against God, which is where it inevitably leads. So the worldly wisdom that's motivated by self, characterized by a a lights-out mentality to the things of God, inevitably leads to the opposition to God Himself. And look at verse 16, the results of that in verse 16. For where you have jealousy and selfish ambition, where these exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. See, James justifies his, his harsh verdict on this kind of wisdom saying that he can call it earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic by simply looking at the effects that it's causing in their church and in the lives of these people. Disorder and every vile practice. Friends, do you realize that the ultimate example of the disorder and every vile practice that has come into this world, every casualty, tragedy, thing we see in this world comes from the very kind of wisdom James is warning us against here. I want you to keep your finger in James and go with me to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. You're going to see this just come out and amazing. So Genesis chapter 3, this is the fall if you're familiar with it. The enemy is talking to man and woman and tempting them. And look what happens in verse 6. This is kind of the culmination of it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise. Here's, here's the thing. She didn't need to be wise. They had direct access to the king. She had access to the wisdom of the universe. But she was tempted to be wise by this. She took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So I, I want you to get this. The whole conversation of the serpent challenging Adam and Eve, the whole context was a demonic wisdom. It was to stand in opposition to God. But notice how it's cloaked in verse 1 as just this earthly neutral wisdom. Look at the second half of verse 1. So the serpent said, oh, did, 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 did God actually say you shouldn't eat from that? I, did, does he say something about this? I don't know. I wasn't thinking about it. Did he actually say, give you this prohibition? Because I don't know. I'm not thinking about what he said. They're not even thinking about, are there biblical principles at play here, right? So he, but he, you know, we know, we know this is the enemy, so he just pretends, oh, I'm not coming against him, I'm just asking, you know, I wasn't even thinking about it. But then that neutral wisdom turns into a contrasting wisdom very quickly in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. Actually contrasting the very teaching that God gave her. Why was she even entertaining to eat from it when the biblical command was don't eat? And because of that embracing of worldly wisdom, every manner of disorder and vile practice has plagued us ever since. Now, that's the bad news, right? So let's look at at the good news here, real wisdom. We can go back to James. And like worldly wisdom, real wisdom has a motivation, has characteristics, and a final result. So the motivation for real wisdom here is verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. 
And I, I thought about it. That seems odd. Why, why would he describe it as pure? Well, the wisdom from above is first pure. And then I realized this absolutely makes sense in the broader context of what James has been writing about, right? The entire book, uh, James has been contrasting the kind of false wisdom and real wisdom, and if false wisdom is this mixed, diluted, half bad, half good, kind of whatever kind of wisdom, then real wisdom is an undiluted, whole, coherent purity. That's the message James has been giving us the whole time. Just as God is a constant one, no shadow of turning and variation, His people should reflect Him as well. That kind of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above, is pure, absolutely pure. Friends, that's why the Christian worldview is such a hope for the world. It is a coherent understanding of reality. It's not just a moral set of systems. It is an understanding of our sexuality. The Christian worldview explains why we are engendered beings. The Christian worldview talks about our finances, talks about our parenting, talks about the way we are as employees and employers. It talks about life, death, and everything in between that matters and everything that's following after. It is a massive, coherent system. James says it's, it's, that's the way it's got to be. You can't pick and choose. You shouldn't pick and choose. It won't work out. So the wisdom that comes from above is pure. You'll know real wisdom because it's free of the moral and spiritual defects of the double-minded, the half-hearted, the ones that are not committed. So the motivation of real wisdom is to be sold out to the things of God, to be sold out to the way God sees and the way God does things. Uh, let me go to um, Luke chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but you can. Luke chapter 9, verses 59 to 62. Jesus is talking to people about coming to Him. He's calling disciples after Him, and, and this is what happens. As they were going along the road, someone said to Him, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 58, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds, have, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, Jesus said, follow me, but the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What, what is Jesus doing? Is he try, not trying to not have disciples? He's trying to exemplify what is required of discipleship. There's no half-heartedness there. He's not saying that the things of this world are not important, but he's saying they're all relatively important. And if you are not wholeheartedly committed, it's not going to work out. Friends, we live in too radical a world to be half-heartedly committed to the gospel. You have to be stronger than your excuses. Can you do that? Can you be stronger than your excuses? So there's, there's a family on my block that we've been trying to befriend and just share the gospel with, and things are just going sideways since we've known them. And I've had a chance to share the gospel with this man and bought him a Bible and talked with him a few times, about four times, and I've been seeing his life go down so bad. The last two times, I just laid it out. says, your life is hidden to the tubes. 
You need something to be different. You need the gospel. I mean, we've shared, and he's been, he's been in my backyard. He was weeping. He knows this. I says, this is what we're going to do. Let's say his name is Joey. I said, Joey, that's my church. I mean, that's the great thing about living right here. You can see the church. I said, that's it right there. Take your family. Take your kids. Just show up at 9 o'clock. That's it. Just be there at 9. You think he showed up? No. And there's always, there's always, there's always a reason. There's always some reason. His wife leaves him. He doesn't show up. Every month his kids are getting further and further away. Who knows what's going on? He doesn't show up. And he's always got a reason. Friends, it's not that I'm saying you come to church and all of a sudden everything's awesome. That's, that's not it. It's not as if regular church attendance is the pinnacle of Christian faith and that solves the problem. No, it's not. It's actually the floor but I'm trying to make it as easy as possible. So I start with the most easiest thing. The easiest thing is just show up, sit down. You don't even got to stand when Adam asks you to stand, right? Just be there. Because here's why it's so important. If you don't even do the easiest thing, I guarantee you, and this applies for people who are Christians in churches. If this, you're not even doing the easiest thing, I guarantee you, you're not at home reading the word. You're not praying. You're not trying to kill your flesh. You're not trying to pursue holiness. If you're not even just going to do the most easiest thing that's asked of you, you are, you're out of the game. I know it. And so the, the, the emphasis that we put on here on regular church attendance isn't because we want seats filled. That's not it. It's because I understand the spiritual dynamic that if the easiest thing isn't happening, man, the whole manner of things is not taking place. We need to be stronger than our excuses, and that's what Jesus was saying. So the wisdom from above that comes to us is pure. We need to embrace it as well. And those who do, look at the characteristics that flow from that in verse 17. It's like this list is like the, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 to 23. And notice the first three, peaceful, gentle, and reasonable. This is the exact opposite of jealousy and selfish ambition. Then James lists mercy and good works. You remember in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, James made a direct correlation between good works as a result of true faith. Remember that? So it's no wonder that James again links here in chapter 3 mercy with good fruit as the result of wisdom, of true wisdom. So the way faith works in chapter 2 is the same way wisdom works in chapter 3. They're synonymous for a vital Christian life. That's what he's talking about here. And then, uh, then he, he ends up with these words, genuine and sincere. Again, these are words that are part, part of the theme of James. God is the real deal. He's not impartial like we can be seen in the way we treat people. He's not impartial or inconsistent like the way we can be in the way we use our words. God's genuine. God's sincere. And those who are stronger than their excuses and they go after the wisdom of God, this is the reality that's going to happen in their lives. Verse 18, here's the result of it. A harvest of righteousness. Now, what he means is that he's not using the word righteousness as, we, as Paul often does to, to talk about a kind of an abstract concept of being made right with God. He's using it here like the Old Testament and Jesus does in the Gospels to talk about kind of righteous acts, virtuous living, just living, righteous, like you are a man who does righteous things. So in other words, 
the one, the church, the family, the individual who lives wisely, which is to say in verse 18, sows in peace, will reap a bountiful harvest of justice, of virtue, of right, good living. Well, it's easy to see. Which one do you want? A harvest of righteousness or disorder in every vile practice? It's it's a no-brainer. That's easy. We all want a harvest of righteousness for our lives, our relationships. We want a harvest of righteousness for our friends, our family. Why, Why would we even think we'd have to consider which one we'd choose? I'll tell you why, because the wisdom of this world is so easy and natural to us. We would choose disorder and every vile practice because it comes so naturally to us, and it's so easy. We think we're being wise, but we're actually being the fool. God's Word is the outside standard that tells us whether or not we actually are wise or we are foolish. That's why we listen to it. That's why we study it. That's why we read it. That's why we memorize it. That's why we value God's Word. Because I recognize I'm a fool. And I have years and experiences to point back to say, yeah, I'm a fool. I can say that because my identity is not in being seen as competent and smart and wise. My identity is that I'm forgiven and God makes up for my foolishness. So I can go to my wife and say, I'm not being the husband I need to be. I can go to my kids and say, I'm screwing up as a father. I have an idol in my heart, and that's perfect kids, and I'm lashing out. I I can say, I'm wrong. I can go to my elders and say, yeah, I pushed that one a little too much maybe. Because my identity is not in my wisdom. My identity is in Christ, and that is yours as well. Friends, uh, we need to conclude, but just as God's wisdom is the ultimate answer for the full disorder and depravity that's come into this world from from Genesis 3, God's wisdom is also the answer for every situation James talks about and every situation you'll face. And God's fullest wisdom is seen no more clearly than in the gospel message, which Paul admittedly says seems foolish to the world, you know? Let me read what Paul says. We'll wrap it up with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 18, verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 18 and 25. Listen to what Paul says to what we learned from James. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Why? Because it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. And listen to what Paul says here. Where is the one who's wise? Sounds like James, who's wise amongst you. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of this world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs. The Greeks want wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Gentile, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Skipping down to verse 30, Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom in our righteousness and sanctification and redemption, Jesus Christ is wisdom incarnate. And he says, look, if you're thirsty, you're hungry, if you're burdened, come to me. Friends, wisdom starts at the foot of Jesus Christ. Real wisdom starts with him. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the amazing realities of Scripture. Father, just in these five, six verses, James beautifully displays the foolish wisdom that so often guides our lives and contrasts it with the godly wisdom that we want to shape our lives now. Lord, help us to be a people who are wise enough to know we're fools and humble enough to go to you to get that wisdom. Thank you that you provide for our needs. We thank you for all these things done in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.